Well, hello, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to share with you stories that empower you to do, to be, to achieve, and to impact more through your life. Maybe more simply said, I'm fired up to share with you stories that help you live inspired. After today's episode, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com with your feedback, maybe your guest suggestions for future shows, stories on how this podcast has helped you live more inspired, or questions that you have for me. Again, send that email to me at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com. And now, let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to today's Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. There is a question I want you to think about on the front side of this episode. Here it is. What's your disability, and how does it inform how you show up, interact with others, and lead your life? Let me ask that question again. I want to make sure that you are hearing it loud and clear today. What is your disability, and how does it inform how you show up, interact with others, and lead your life. Disabilities, my friends, we all have them. Some of them might be emotional or spiritual, financial, maybe even relational. Others are a bit more obvious, and the entire world can very clearly, very quickly see them. Today, as I get ready to bring on a new guest, the question again is, what is your disability? One of mine, and I got plenty to choose from, but one of mine stems from being burned as a child. At age nine, I was burned, as many of you know, on 100% of my body. I lost my fingers to amputation, and it physically changed me forever. Seems like a pretty obvious disability. But the one that I wrestled with the most throughout the course of my life wasn't actually physical. It was emotional. I longed to be seen as ordinary, and to be seen as worthy, and to be seen as acceptable like everybody else. And although I had an awesome life, I never really saw those characteristics within myself. And then one day while shaving, my little boy, Jack, he's about three years old at the time, taught me an important lesson that scars may make you different, but they also may make you beautiful. Let me explain. You see, I I had my shirt off. I was staring into the mirror, getting the shaving done just right. He's standing just to my right-hand side. He's also looking into a little mirror, acting as if he is shaving. And then he stops. He looks up at me, and then with his index finger, he starts tracking one of the scars on my stomach. He tracks it from the top all the way to the bottom, and then he tracks it back up again. Then he looks at me and says, Dad. And as he said the the word dad, I'm getting ready to respond why I have these scars, why I'm different than other guys, why he doesn't have one of those on his tummy. I'm getting ready to respond from my own place of brokenness, and then I'm getting ready actually in the end to be completely surprised by what he says next. Here it is. Dad, your tummy is red, it is bumpy, and it is ridgy. There's a long pause, and then he says, and dad, I love it. 
Dad, your tummy is red. It's bumpy and it is ridgy. And I love it. My friends, when you look into the mirror of your lives, what do you see? When you look at your scars, your graying hair, the lack of hair up there now for some of us, when you look at your life, when you look at your relationships, the lack of relationships for some of us, when you look at your disabilities, what do you see? And then how do those disabilities inform the way that we show up, we treat others, and we lead our lives going forward? Which brings us to today's guest. Her name is Kia Brown. Kia was born with cerebral palsy. It physically affected the way that she moves on the right side of her body. And yet Kia is a shining example of how to thrive while having a disability. She brings awareness to the struggles and to the triumphs that others with disabilities may have. Kia is a disability rights activist. She's the creator of an inspiring viral campaign called hashtag disabled and cute. I want you to check it out. Disabled and cute. She's a journalist. She's a sister. She's a daughter. And she is our newest friends. My friends today, buckle up, look into the mirror with a new set of eyes and get ready to meet a new friend. Her name is Kia. She's confident. She's passionate. She's funny. And she's with us on the Live Inspired podcast. Kia, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for this conversation. It, it, I really, really am. <laughs> Likewise, I have been getting to know you since we booked you as a guest been following you on Twitter, been following you on various social media. And then over the weekend, I had the opportunity of reading, give me the drum roll because it just came out, Kia, The Pretty One. And it is a funny, honest, authentic, poignant read. I loved it. And I cannot wait to unpack it during our time together today. But for those who have not yet read the book, The Pretty One, or they do not yet know the name Kia Brown, give us a little bit of an example of the work you're doing today, Kia. Well, I am a writer and a journalist. And so the thing that I try to focus on in my nonfiction work is identity-based. So I talk about disability and being a Black woman and how I navigate the world with the knowledge that certain people don't give me the respect or care that I deserve. And a lot of people do. So it's a bit of a um, double-edged sword in that way. And then in my journalistic work, I write profiles of some celebrities that people love. And mm-hmm. I write, I talk to other writers and other readers. And so I, a lot of the work that I do is really contingent on trying to find out what makes people who they are and why they are who they are. Wow. Well, I want to hear what makes you who you are and why you are the way you are during this interview. And I think if we do that, others will recognize why they are the way they are and what makes them special and what can make them even more beautiful going forward. You unpack it in The Pretty One, and we get to talk about it during this Live Inspired podcast. But for those who really don't know the backdrop of your story, you mentioned the word disability. Yes, I'm a woman of color, but I'm also a woman with a disability. What is the disability that you mentioned? I have cerebral palsy, which affects the right side of my body. It's a mild case, so I'm a full-time walker, um, <laughs> but I do walk with a limp, mm-hmm. and I have some crooked and bent fingers to go along with it. So I do enter the world with both a physical visible disability and some um, internal disabilities as well. And so what that means is when I enter public spaces, I often catch people staring, but I never know if that's because my outfit is cute (laughs) or because they see them 
with cerebral palsy, there's so many different variations of it. And because mine is a milder case, I do walk full time and I, I use the wheelchair in airports because I can't walk long distances. For me, a lot of what I try to do with my work in general is talk about the fact that disability is not just your mobility aids, that people who don't use those mobility aids are still just as worthy as one might see a person with um, a wheelchair or a cane. Right. It's ironic that you brought up this idea, are they staring at me and my hand and my limp, or are they staring at my beautiful outfit? You and I were talking before we began recording this, and uh, of course, at age nine, I was in a house fire, deal with some scars, I deal with some stares, and as a child, my mother used to say to me, John, they're staring because they're jealous. And for a long time, I believed that. When you were a little one and others were staring at you as you came into a restaurant or into uh, the shopping mall, I know you're big in a shopping, we'll talk about that here in a moment. How would you, how would you receive those stares as a child? Very negatively. I would say about 12 or so, that's when I started doing it negatively. Before that, though, I never really noticed it. I never really took the time to. Um, but when I did, when I started to notice them happening, I took it very negatively. I, I like internalized it and treated it as though it was a marker or an indication of how I was as a person, even though those people didn't really know me. I thought that their staring meant that I was wrong or mm -hmm. bad or not good enough. And I really spent the rest of my adolescence after 12 and well into adulthood thinking that this meant that I was bad. And it wasn't that they were looking at my cute outfit or it wasn't that they were jealous, but just that they were like disgusted. So it's weird to go to like an immediately negative place like that yes. looking back, but that's exactly where I went. You shared two stories in the book from when you were 12, and both of them very moving. One of them, middle school, you, you shared a moment ago that you did not even notice the stairs until you were 12, and it was this experience that allowed you really for the first time to notice them. Talk about that experience in school. School was great. You know, none of my other classmates ever said anything negative. They never, like, asked me any intrusive question. By the time I got to that age and this incident where a young boy was following me around the cafeteria and mocking the way that I walked, he was, like, mimicking my gait and laughing about it. And I didn't even notice until my other friend told me what he was doing, and I was mortified. And that was the first instance for me. Not only that I realized that I was disabled, but that I realized that People can make fun of me for it and think of it as a negative thing. That person, wherever he is in the world, really had an impact on my life at that early age, and it wasn't at all positive. You, you mentioned as you went deeper into the story that you left that conversation with your friend, understanding what this young boy was doing. You went to the bathroom, and that's the first time you really saw the reflection with a clear lens. Yes, I literally went to the bathroom, I looked in the mirror, and I watched myself walk in full for the first time. And I was just devastated. I was upset because I just was like, why did no one tell me? Because I think it was that I knew that, that I was different, but I didn't know that I was visually different. Mm -hmm. um, I just assumed that I looked like, you know, my older brother and my twin sister. And I assumed that I was walking like everybody else, could do all these things that they were already doing. In that moment, I realized, no, you're completely different than mm -hmm. you once believed you were. And that difference is bad. 
I just really struggled because I didn't know how to compartmentalize who I thought I was and who this other random person who didn't already know me and love me thought I was. Well, sometimes people who have negative intent can bring us to our knees and really negatively affect our lives. And then also times, sometimes mm-hmm. those of those who seem to have positive intent can also negatively affect our lives. And both happen to you at age yeah. 12. You're in a record store. You're just going through the albums, trying to grab your favorite record at the time or CD, whatever it may have been. Share that story with our listeners. I was actually in a Walmart and I was looking for, I think it was an Avril Lavigne CD. And this woman just came up to me and she was like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what happened to you, but I'm praying for you. And then she gave me a thumbs up and just walked away. And I was like, this cannot be happening. What was I supposed to do with that? How was I supposed to take that? And I think I also internalized that as well because I was just a good woman who doesn't even know me. It would just feel like she could come up to me and, and say that and make me feel like, okay, this is another reason that you're othered and this is another reason why differences make you bad because random people come up to you and say that they don't know what's wrong with you, but that they're praying for you. I'm a person who believes in God. But I think just the act of somebody deciding to be like, I'm going to tell this 12-year-old girl that there's something wrong with her and that I'm praying in the hopes that it'll be fixed. She can be quote-unquote better or more visually acceptable. It was just weird. So, Kia, talk about that for a while, not not from the lens of a 12-year-old, but f- as a young woman, as a leader in life, as an expert on this subject matter. What is the proper way that we ought to acknowledge or ignore those with disabilities as we walk into a Walmart, a record store, through an airport, or anywhere in life? What what is, What is the proper way to meet them? I think it's about being respectful. I much prefer, and this isn't for everybody in the community, but for me, I much prefer people who stop and ask a question. Do you mind if I ask you X, Y, and Z thing? And, I, and I'm more likely to answer versus somebody just coming up and being like, I feel so sorry for you. What happened? You know, mm-hmm. what accident were you in? Like, I think that sometimes people get really invasive. And I feel like what needs to happen is people need to treat disabled people like they would a non-disabled person. So you're not going to come up to a non-disabled person in the middle of the mall or the store and say, so what happened to you? You'll, you know, introduce yourself and then be like, oh, okay, do you mind if I asked you what happened? Mm -hmm. Just, I think, make it a conversation and not so much a just desire for this one particular answer. Let's talk about the subject of help. I have frequent opportunities to accept help from others who are trying to, you know, carry a bag or help me out of a car or carry a coffee to a table. And years ago, I read a book from a gentleman who had some disabilities, and he said, every time someone asks me if I need help today, I say yes, because I realize I'm giving them a gift. And that changed the way I viewed people's request. Oh, can I help you? And now my answer, proudly so, is yes. I could sure use some help over to that table. Why not? I think it's a gift to them. But I also recognize not everybody who, that has a disability feels the same. Some are, are grossly yeah. offended that someone would ask them if they need help. What's your take on that? My take is that I'm really bad at asking for help outside of my family. I don't even have to ask my family, but I get really self-conscious and I get really insecure about having to ask for help in public spaces. So nine times out of 10, I'm not going to do it just because I feel like 
it makes me less than, even though I know that that's not true. What about when someone asks you, hey, Kia, can I can I help you with that? Nine times out of ten, I'll say yes, because I think sometimes what helps me in that way is that when other people ask me, I don't feel like I'm being too much of a burden or what have you on them for for needing the help because they're asking to give it to me. I don't have a problem with people asking me. Mm. But I do know that for me, in public spaces, like outside of my family and friends, I feel better when somebody's like, hey, do you need help with that? Than me just being like, hey, I need help. I'm very much thankful when people ask and I know that I need it because otherwise I would just try to struggle through it because I'm just so afraid to ask for help to people that don't know me. Let's talk about someone who does know you. Her name is Leah. Sounds very similar to Kia. You've known her literally your entire life. Tell us about Leah. Leah is the best. She's my twin sister, even though I'm a minute older. And trust me, the minute counts. <laughs> and she, it does. You know, you got to take all the wins you can get. But she is funny and smart and beautiful. And we really grew up playing together all the time and wearing matching outfits that were sometimes in different colors, but sometimes the exact same thing with different color shoes. She and I have never known a world without each other. So we grew up initially very, I guess, on equal footing. But as we got older, I got into high school. I started to resent her because all these boys thought she was really pretty. You see, Rhea is non-disabled. She doesn't have a physical disability so all the boys in high school would come up to me and they would be like can you put in a good word for your sister Mm. like she's so pretty and she's this and she's that and Leah to her credit literally had no interest in dating she just didn't care enough but I cared enough for the both of us and so I was just like really resentful of her and I would try to like tear her down and call her the names that I was calling myself secretly Because because she had what you longed for yes She had what I thought was the best life, and I didn't have it because I was like, well, I'm disabled, and nobody's, you know, asking her about me, and nobody is telling her that I'm beautiful, and so because I think Rhea was the one who is my twin sister, and so I live in this world with somebody who shares my DNA, but because we don't look a bunch alike. And I don't know if that's because of my disability or not, because we are identical twins, but we don't look that much alike. And so I internalize that to be like, she's the pretty one, Mm. but also that I'm the ugly one because we can't both be pretty is what I believed for a really long time. Put a lot of my view of myself in the hands of boys who didn't necessarily feel those same feelings that they did for her. When were you mature and aware enough to even identify what you were doing. Me- meaning, tearing down your sister in the hopes of somehow awkwardly building yourself up. Maybe 21, okay. 22. When did you take her out to lunch and say, hey, Leah, you need to know this. For a decade, I have been belittling you because of this. What's so funny is I never outwardly said it to her. Um, We just did our first ever podcast together. Mm. And I think there, like then, and we're 27 now. So like then was when she heard for the first time, like the specifics of why I thought that I had to be mean to her. I was very vague. Like, I'm so sorry for the way that I treated you. I'm sorry that I once made you feel like you were less than because I was feeling less than. With this book coming on, I decided to sit her down, have her read the essay that I wrote about her, and so she could really see the intricacies of my own insecurities and what they mm. allowed me to do to our relationship before it ever got off of the ground 
to be anything like the twins that I admired when we were growing up. So I think this is from page 26. I wrote it down in my notes. The quote is from you. Insecurity is often the catalyst that sparks the most judgment. Beautiful words. Tell me and our listeners what it means. When we're often insecure, we take that insecurity and we push it out onto other people through judgment. So essentially our own securities spark our judgments in other people. So if we're looking at somebody and we're like, ooh, I can't believe that they wore that out of the house, or I can't believe that they live like that. Like, thank God I don't live like that. Mm -hmm. That's an insecurity more than it is anything else. Because there's something deep within yourself that makes you feel like you have to project your discomfort with the way that somebody else is living their life onto them because you can't admit to yourself that you're insecure about something in your own life. Well said. What, what for you, what's the hardest part about dealing with a disability? Remembering that my disability doesn't make me bad or it doesn't mean that I'm disgusting or gross. And I think that that's a lot of everyday work for me is just reminding myself that I'm disabled and I'm cute. And I think that there's no either or. I think it's got to be both in order for me to be the person I want to be and make the changes that I want to make is that I have to remember that there's nothing wrong with being disabled. There's nothing wrong with saying the word disabled. I just have to really work every day to make sure that I don't forget that. How have you become this champion for this disability movement? Like, when did that journey begin? I've been writing professionally since 2015, but a lot of this, a lot of my early work was very self-deprecating and very negative in that I was constantly like, no one could possibly care about me or what I have to say, especially romantically Mm. as a disabled person. And then 2016 happened and everything was going really well for me professionally. You know, I was being published in really cool dream places. I had a viral hashtag. And then I just started to look at myself and think, we can't live like this for the rest of our lives. Like We have to actively try to want to be alive. For me, that came with four things that I like about myself, saying those four things every single day so that I could be able to get out of bed in the morning and not feel a sense of dread just for being And that was really just about survival. Can you share with us what are those four things? Well, they change every day. The first four things, I went to the mirror and I said, today I like my nose and my ears and my mouth and my personality. And then the next day it would be like, today I like my toes and my knees and my mouth and my hair. Like there would be both physical things and personality wise. Like Mm -hmm. I'd be like, I like that I'm loyal. I like that I'm funny. I like that I'm smart but there's always something physical in it because I think a lot of my initial insecurity came from disliking my physical body. So I forced myself to, you know, think of things, even on bad days where I'm like, there's not, you know, that much great about me. I'm like, you know, we have to find four things because (laughs) we're not going to give up now. (laughs) You know what I mean? We've done all this work. You just got to keep going. So yeah, I do that every morning and night. I don't do it every single day anymore because I don't have to, thank goodness, but I do do it at least three times a week, just to remind myself like where I am and how I got here and why it's so important to continue working every day toward self-love. Well, you mentioned a moment ago that you had a little hashtag that went viral and it went viral in a big, big, big way. The hashtag Mm -hmm. is disabled and cute. 
Talk yes. about the genesis of the hashtag disabled and cute. Like I said, in 2016, I started to feel really good about myself. And through the effort of those four things every day, I decided, like, I should celebrate the fact that I still feel good because I was doing it every single day. And by the time February 2017 hit, I was like, I still feel really good. Like, how wild is this that I'm still able to look at myself in the mirror and smile back at my reflection. What I did was I chose four pictures that I really liked. I made the hashtag disabled and cute, and then I left Twitter because I was on deadline. Then I came back and it was trending, and then by the end of the week we were viral, and then by the end of the next week we were global. And so it kind of just took off. The purpose of it for me was just to celebrate the fact that I was finally comfortable in my body and finally willing to try to find things to love about myself. And it became this place where people could celebrate themselves and celebrate each other and give themselves reasons to keep trying every day. What is it like to be at age 12 uh, angry about the reflection in the mirror and broken and sad about it? And now at your age to just a couple days ago, have a book called The Pretty One and on the front of that book, a very pretty lady named Kia Brown smiling, hands in the picture, looking radiant. What, what is it like to have that crossover from feeling beat down by that reflection to so proud and in love with it that it's on the front of bookstore covers now? It just feels kind of like a revolution. I think that if you could go back and ask the 12-year-old me, you know, would she have a book and mm -hmm. would she be on the cover of it with her hands visible? I would say absolutely not. What are you talking about? Why is this person saying this thing that's never going to be true? The fact that it's out in the world and people get to read it and understand that this is a happy ending. You know, it's not tied neat with a bow, but it's a happy ending. And because so often when we see portrayals of disability, we're always dead before the end of the movie or dead before the end of the book or, you know, chosen as a sacrifice to a non-disabled character. I think for me particularly to be that 12-year-old girl and to know that this is the life we live now and to know that this is a book that's out into the world, and this is a book that will hopefully change people's lives and minds. This is just wild. Well, it's radiant. I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful cover. You love pop culture. You love writing about it. You love soaking it up. You love drinking it down and savoring it. What was it like then for you to have Brie Larson reach out and say, hey, listen, I want to do uh, a really cool, intimate article, and I want you to write it? That was a dream come true. And it was a dream that, like, you don't even think about it being possible. And tell our listeners who Brie Larson is, just on the chance they don't know. Brie Larson is an actress, and she won the Oscar for Bloom in 2015. And she's Captain Marvel in the new Marvel movies. She's very talented, but she also really cares about the world. And I think that was the thing that we connected on, is that she reached out. Because we had been following each other on Twitter for a while. She really liked my work, and she reached out to Marie Claire UK, who had asked her to be their cover girl on the month that Captain Marvel came out. And she was like, I want Kia to do it. So they emailed me, which is wild. That I is still wild. Kind of can't, I can't believe that it happened. I, to know that I impacted someone with so much influence, that they would be like, listen, I want you to have this opportunity to write for a, a main stage like that. Um, it really meant a lot to me. And it was my second biggest cover I've ever done. Mm. 
And I'm so grateful that she allowed me to be the one to do it. A lot of times people see me and they're like, okay, this person can absolutely write about disability. But she also allowed me to show the world that I can do more than just identity-based writing and that I can talk to these people that you love and, and give a nuanced and fun interview. I'm such a fan of hers already. To be able to, to do that and to show my chops, yeah. you know. <laughs> Well, you've been showing your chops, not only in that article, but in every interview that I've listened to and every page that I've read done by you. I'm going to quote you and then let you unpack what you're saying here. But this quote is so beautiful. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to slow it down. So here it is, my friends listening. When you treat having a child with disabilities as the worst possibility in the world of having a child— Well, that also means that you treat all of us adults with disabilities as if we are the worst outcome. Man, that's powerful. What what are you saying there? A lot of people will tell me that they're pregnant and they want to do that genealogy test. And so if their kid is disabled, then they're going to abort. Like I actually had a woman tell me that on Twitter that she was pregnant. Her baby was tested to be disabled. She was going to abort. I believe that when you view disabled kids as the worst possible thing to happen for you having children, you're also viewing the adults, the kids that became adults, as these eyesores and the worst possible thing. And so we're not given our right and the respect that we deserve. You know, my family and I walked through the Holocaust Museum just last week in D.C. and profoundly moved, of course, through that experience. But on a small wall, I think on the third floor, there's a, there's a bunch of images of people who are in wheelchairs, people who are physically challenged, people who are struggling. And, uh, and then a, a little line below that, that of course, in Nazi Germany, we put all of those people to death. That's just the way we handled that. I think what you're calling out here is uh, what was so obviously wrong almost 80 years ago remains wrong today. Right. I mean, we, yeah, we have to right. see perfection in all of us. It's not maybe your ideal of it, but it is perfection in all of us. And it is beautiful if you're looking for it. Yes, absolutely. I think that's the perfect way to describe it. Like, it is beautiful, but it just depends on the way that you look at it. So often we subscribe to this idea of strength as whether you're super strong and you can lift a bunch or you can carry this big thing and strength as being able to walk long distances or walk at all. And what we have to try to do is shift that idea so that we see strength as vulnerability Mm. and strength as survival in the face of adversity versus it just being about who can lift water, who can do this, or who can climb mountains and who can scale buildings. It's not just about these physical assertions of strength, but it's also about survival and being vulnerable and trying every day. And so for a lot of people with disabilities, we have to adjust and live in a world that isn't designed for us. That's strength, to be able to go on about our days and do things in a world that doesn't often think about accessibility. That's strength. Well, you're right about that strength in The Pretty One. And as we begin moving forward through this interview, I want to make sure that we lead into what we call, Kia, the Live Inspired Seven. So these are seven questions we ask every one of our guests. You are now tethered to some remarkable people, and they fortunately are tethered back to you. So what is the best book you've ever read? The best book I've ever read is actually a romance novel. It is by 
Jasmine Guillory, and it is called The Wedding Date. And it's just so smart and funny. And I find that the best books that I read are often romance. I think that all writers and creatives should look to romance as a place where they can learn the art of pacing and character and plot and detail. And that's where I go when I'm looking for something to make me feel the joy of a happy ending, but also the intelligence of how to get to that place. Perfect. What is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a child that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Fearlessness. I never thought about how something could hurt me. I was always like running and jumping and playing without any sort of idea that like I could fall and really hurt myself because I would fall, but I would always get back up and I wouldn't even think about it. I wish that I still had that. Kia, if your home caught fire and all living things are out and you have an opportunity to race in and grab one item, what's that one thing you would grab? I think it would be the picture of my grandmother that's on my desk in my room. You wrote about your grandmother. What is it about your grandmother that uh, has you running back into a burning house to grab her image? She was just a brilliant woman and she was smart and funny. And she loved us all so deeply that I think I feel closest to her when I stop and look at the picture. It's a reminder for me that I got to live in the world with a woman who was just amazing. I wouldn't want to be without that. Your book begins with you seated. And so the the first sentence in your book is, my longest relationship has been with chairs. So uh, get comfortable for this next question. Kia, if you could sit on a chair overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would you want in that chair right next to you? Oprah Winfrey. What would you ask Oprah? I would just ask her questions about what it means for her to be somebody that people like me look to and admire and, you know, weep over. Because I think there's a lot of power in that. And I wonder if she stops and thinks about the impact that she has on millions and millions of people around the world. What's the best advice, whether it was from Oprah, your grandmother, or anybody else, what's the best advice you've ever received? Keep going even when it feels like there's no point to it. Push through that fear and that exhaustion to make sure that, you know, you're doing the things that you love, you're doing the things that matter to you. And then on the bad days, what's important is that we keep trying. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Girl, (laughs) in seven years, you're going to look back at this time and you're going to laugh fondly at yourself. You think that you have it all figured out and you think that you know the world and your life is going to change forever because you have a book out in the world. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I would just tell her, you know, to relax and not be so hard on herself because there's going to come a time in her life when she looks in the mirror and she's super excited when she sees the person staring back at her because that person is beautiful. And even though she doesn't know it now, she's going to wake up every day glad that she did. Mm. Kia Brown, the pretty one. As you get ready to answer question number seven, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Kia Brown changed the world, but she had to change herself first. To do that, she had to choose love in the face of so many other things, and she did. Kia Brown changed the world, but had to change herself first by choosing love in the face of all kinds of other things. 
Kia, I want to thank you for choosing love in the face of all kinds of things. I want to thank you for showing that 12-year-old back in middle school what the pretty one looks like in action. And I want to thank you for reminding all of us that the best is yet to come. But uh, we got to choose love over all other things. Thank you so much. This was such a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me. My friends, that is Kia Brown. She's the author and she's the owner of Being the Pretty One. I am John O'Leary, and this is your day. Choose love and live inspired. My friends, thank you so much for listening to today's Live Inspire podcast. I hope you share with your friends, your family, your colleagues, your letter carrier, your dog walker, that stranger seated next to you on the bus ride, that lady working out right next to you, the guy checking out in front of you. In other words, share with everyone that you're listening and that you are subscribing to the Live Inspired podcast. Together as a Live Inspired community, and yes, that includes you. You are part of this community. Together, we can change the world. I can't wait to share with you the next episode.